America's National Parks podcast is sponsored by L.L. Bean. This year, L.L. Bean is joining up with the National Park Foundation, the official nonprofit partner of the National Park Service, to help you find your happy place in an amazing system of more than 400 national parks, including historic and cultural sites, monuments, preserves, lakeshores, and seashores that dot the American landscape, many of which you'll find just a short trip from home. L.L. Bean is proud to be an official partner of the National Park Foundation. Discover your perfect day in a park at findyourpark.com. Would it surprise you to learn that at the turn of the 20th century, the eastern half of the American landscape looked very different than it does today? I'm not talking about man-made cities and highways, but the wild nature. If you were to hop in a time machine and hike the Appalachian Trail in the year 1900, the wilderness you would find would be entirely different. Today on America's National Parks, a tree disease that altered America and a chance at rebirth on the site of one of our nation's greatest tragedies. Here's Abigail Trebu. One medium onion, a quarter cup margarine, one tablespoon all-purpose flour, two quarts chicken broth, one cup smooth peanut butter, half a cup unsalted peanuts, chopped, one tablespoon Worcestershire sauce, half a cup water chestnuts. Saute the onion and margarine, stir in the flour to make a roux, once the roux is ready, add chicken broth and bring to a boil. Remove from heat and strain. Add peanut butter and Worcestershire sauce and stir. Hold on stove at a low heat until ready to serve. Garnish with chopped peanuts and water chestnuts. That's the colonial peanut and chestnut soup recipe from the historic Mount Vernon Inn once part of George and Martha Washington's estate, except they wouldn't have used water chestnuts. The farm teemed with towering American chestnut trees. Thomas Jefferson also planted chestnut trees on his Monticello estate, but he hardly needed to. American chestnut trees once blanketed the East Coast. Up to 100 feet tall and more than 9 feet in diameter, the American variety of chestnut trees were nearly as awe-inspiring as the redwoods of the West Coast. And the tree's natural range stretched from Ontario to Georgia, west through the mountains and highlands to Alabama, and north to the plains of Indiana and Illinois. The leaves are long and narrow, with parallel veins leading to large serrations on the edges. 
Its straight grain, strength, and rot resistance made the wood unsurpassed for splitting and building most of the early American barns, houses, telephone poles, fencing, and piers. It was lighter than oak, but just as strong. The tree was the primary source of tannin used to cure leather. But its most unique feature was, of course, the edible nut. Chestnuts were an important part of the diet of colonists, Native Americans, and wildlife alike. It was perfect for roasting over an open fire or stuffing a turkey. Chestnuts were roasted, ground into flour for cakes and breads, and stewed into puddings. Native Americans used chestnut meal with corn to make breads, the leaves to alleviate heart troubles, and sprouts to treat sores. The nuts were taken by the wagon load for rail shipment to the big city street corners where they were roasted on vendor carts. Farmers used mature chestnut lots to fatten pigs to bring the highest prices. The nuts fed billions of birds and mammals. Chestnuts four inches deep on the forest floor were common as the tree's flowers developed after the spring frost. Bears, deer, turkeys, and most other forest animal, including the now extinct passenger pigeons, relied on the annual crop. When a chestnut tree died, it rotted from the inside out, creating the perfect den for the then plentiful bear population. And just as important as their uses was the striking beauty of a grand, mature chestnut tree. An estimated four billion huge ancient trees created dense canopies across the east. Grand trees shaded town squares and city parks. It was said that a squirrel could travel from Maine to Georgia by hopping from chestnut tree to chestnut tree and never touch the ground. In fact, over 25% of all Eastern American trees were chestnuts. They were, quite simply, the most important plant in the United States. And over the course of 50 years, they vanished. The Bronx Zoo was home to an impressive collection of American chestnuts, and in 1904, this is where the problem was first discovered. The mature trees that lined the zoo's avenues began to wilt. Large cankers appeared, rupturing the bark, and then the tree's trunk and upper limbs would die. Trees in the New York Botanical Garden began to exhibit the same symptoms, and before anyone could figure out why, the mysterious malady infected chestnuts across New England. By 1906, it was reported to be in New Jersey, Virginia, and Maryland. Spreading 50 miles a year, the blight worked its way across the east, killing virtually every chestnut tree in its path. 
By the time it reached Pennsylvania, quarantine lines were carved. Chemical control options were explored in vain. The blight swept through Pennsylvania, hopping quarantine lines, and by 1950, even the remote forests in southern Illinois were decimated. While some people were trying to stop the blight, others were making it worse. Lumbermen scrambled to cut down the remaining trees for their wood before they were infected and began to rot. Farmers were implored to chop down trees with any sign of blight. Woodmen burned that tree, spare not a single bough, cried a Pennsylvania newspaper. In an attempt to stop the spread, people may have killed off trees that were immune to the mysterious disease. Trees that could have recovered the species. The American chestnut tree was virtually extinct just 50 years after it was so incredibly important to wildlife, the economy, and diets. Millions of acres of land that had once been shaded by the lofty boughs now stood shadowed only by leafless, dead remnants. Now, when I was young, up until I was old teenager at least, chestnuts were here, there's plenty of chestnuts, and we had plenty of squirrels, coons, and all kinds of things that eat them. That's Howard Miller interviewed in 1996 as part of an oral history of West Virginia for the American Folklife Center. They died long about in the 30s sometime, and the wildlife died, most all of it. I guess it hadn't got used to what to eat. Now there's more of it. They've been, they've trained themselves to eat acorns, beech nut, and there's we bought coons and brought in here and turned them loose, and the state brought turkeys in here, and bears have multiplied to there's deer, turkey, bear, coon, chew squirrels. And I like from be here and since I've got to I've got over a hundred acres of timberland. I didn't want them to cut anything that would harm my wildlife because I've got turkeys right up here. I mean, they're not mine, but they're staying on my land. The problem, it was found, was a fungus imported from Asia that attached to animal fur and bird feathers. It may have even originated with trees imported from China to the Bronx Zoo. No quarantine was going to stop birds from perching in trees across the country. The fungus does not kill the roots of the tree, but it doesn't allow them to attain an appreciable height before reinfecting the trunks and killing them back to the ground. So the tree still existed, but could grow to little more than a shrub that could not bear fruit, so the species could not reproduce. The only mature chestnut trees remaining were scattered, isolated groves planted in the far west by early settlers, well beyond the range of the blight, and a few groves in the east kept alive by applying a virus that killed the fungus. 
Ever since the American chestnuts all but disappeared, there have been efforts to find a cure for the fungus and to bring them back. One method involves breeding American chestnuts with Chinese chestnut trees, which are resistant to the fungus, and then backbreeding the hybrids with pure American trees. Some scientists have begun sequencing the DNA of the American chestnut and the fungus that causes the blight. On Tuesday morning, September 11th, 2001, the United States was attacked as four commercial airliners were hijacked in an attempt to strike targets on the ground. Nearly 3,000 people tragically lost their lives. One of those planes missed its planned target, the U.S. Capitol building, because of the action of the 40 passengers and crew who bravely thwarted the hijackers' plans after getting word of the fate of the other planes. The plane crashed into a field in southern Pennsylvania, scarring a strip-mined land tract instead of a populated building. On the 10-year anniversary of the crash, an effigy was dedicated to those brave people who lost their lives. Flight 93 National Memorial. For several years following the memorial's dedication, students, scientists, local community members, and family members of those who died braved the cold on those hollowed grounds, with buckets and mud and work gloves, to dig holes and plant American chestnut trees. The volunteers worked with the American Chestnut Foundation, an organization dedicated to the return of the tree, to help recreate natural woodlands on the ground where Flight 93 crashed. The seedlings, it's hoped, will be the first in more than a century to withstand an invasive chestnut blight fungus. They are the latest batch using the backcross technique to hybridize American chestnuts with the blight-resistant Asian species, producing seedlings that are almost identical to the American variety, about 94% American chestnut, after generations of backcrossing and intercrossing with other hybrid offspring. The foundation became involved with the Flight 93 project when they heard that the park was looking for trees that grow in thin soil it seemed an ideal fit. It's an experiment, one that has a large chance of failing, and there's no way to know if the trees will survive until they reach maturity. Meanwhile, scientists continue to breed more generations of American chestnuts in the hopes of sprouting a truly fungus-resistant strain. Each year, more trees are planted at the Flight 93 Memorial with a goal of 150,000 of various types by next year. Volunteers talk about bringing their grandchildren back someday to see the splendid forest they planted in the memory of American heroes. 
The Flight 93 National Memorial Visitor Complex opened on September 10th, 2015. It takes about 45 minutes to explore the exhibit space, flight path overlook, and the bookstore. You can then drive about a mile to the Memorial Plaza or take a walking trail. The Memorial Plaza marks the edge of the crash site, which is the final resting place of the passengers and crew. It consists of various elements, including a wall of names. It's a self-guided experience. Interpretive panels provide an overview of the story and a cell phone tour provides for more in-depth exploration. A massive 93 foot tall wind chime type sculpture entitled The Tower of Voices is nearly complete, making sure those that perish will always be heard. Parking is limited and during peak visitation, the lot may fill. Early morning is the best time to visit and the visitor center is open from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. This episode of America's National Parks was hosted by me, Jason Epperson, and narrated by Abigail Trebu. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search National Park Podcast. You can also join our new America's National Parks Facebook group. We'll link to all of our social media, as well as National Park Service resources, music credits, and more in the show notes at nationalparkpodcast.com. If you're interested in RV travel, give us a listen over at the RV Miles podcast. You can also follow Abigail and I as we travel the country in our converted school bus with our three boys at ourwanderingfamily.com. This land is your my land from California to the New York Island from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters this land was made for you and me Today's show was sponsored by L.L. Bean. Follow the hashtag BeAnOutsider and visit LLBean.com to find great gear for exploring the national parks.